Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, startup fever. Well, let's see who's got the fever and who's getting out of it alive on the other side. I have some sounds for you. First sound is whoosh. Whoosh! That's the sound of so many new startups roaring out of the starting gate. With energy, commitment, passion, drive, they want to conquer the world. They, of course, want to do business from the get-go, hit the ground running, and be successful. Of course they do. I have another sound for you. Thud! That's a sound, unfortunately, of more than 90% of these startups failing. They're not making it. Something is not happening the way they planned. Their dreams, their hopes are dashed. The market will not get to benefit from all the brilliance they put into their business plan. So the big question is, what's up with this? So many well-meaning entrepreneurs did something not right. Did they misread the market? Did they run out of cash? Did they pick the wrong team? OMG, that might be the worst sin of all. Or all of the above. Now, in an optimistic world, there must be a way to boost the hit rate, the success rate, and spread this wealth a wonderful entrepreneurial spirit beyond Silicon Valley, India, London, New York, Israel, Berlin, wherever people are doing startups, other startup-friendly environments. But how can we all understand this dilemma and help figure out how to boost this rate? We want to get it down from 90% failing, and we got it closer at least to 50% succeeding. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We have a panel of three experts ready to talk about this. They're gurus. They've been in the trenches. They know what they're talking about. So in case you have a gleam in your eye, in case you have an idea for a something that's supposed to take the world by storm, listen up because this could be game-changing for you. And by the way, you're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. So here I want to introduce my first panelist. It's Suraj Suti. He's with SAP Startup Focus. And Suraj sent me a wonderful quote from Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, speaking at the Academy of Achievement. Here's the quote. Startup companies need early planetary alignment because there are so many things that can go wrong. He really said it. Suraj, welcome. How are you today? Very fine, Bhatti. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Where are you calling from, Suraj? I'm calling from India. Where particularly? Bangalore. Okay. Well, that's a good place to start. Suraj, tell me about why you picked this quote from Jeff Bezos, and it certainly speaks to exactly what I said in my intro. So why don't you get us started? Please go ahead. Sure. So, uh, in my role, uh, where I, I talk to a lot number of startups on a daily basis, I think one thing which has come out very strongly in front of me is that uh, for many of these startups, the, there are a lot of different factors which go wrong. So it is not necessarily, for example, 
other main factors like they say product market fit or lack of money but even small small factors such as their cto getting hit over by a bus or any of mm. these factors which which come into play and which literally disrupt everything which a startup is doing so uh, that is the reason why i put up this quote because that is exactly what i believe that all startups need to have which is to have a good amount of luck and early planetary alignment because there are a lot of things which could go wrong and when you should not get it at the wrong moment and then things go wrong very badly so that's the reason yeah. why i chose this quote Thank you, Siraj. I have a question for you. Planetary alignment, according to Jeff Bezos, and you say a good amount of luck. Is it, pardon the expression, a crapshoot? Whether you start in January, whether you start your startup in March, whether you wait till September, do you, are you supposed to go see a tea leaf reader or a fortune teller? Or a, they used to call them psychics. Now they call them intuitives to say, oh, dear woman of the tea leaves or man of the tea leaves, when is the best month to start my company? How do you get that planetary alignment? Just briefly, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, in, um, I wouldn't say it is a specific month or a time. It is just that when you move along, you start seeing things coming into the way. And, I mean, the only way you can work with this is that you have to accept that things are, there are things which are beyond your control and there are things which are within your control and deal with it. So when I say planetary arrangement, it is not a larger picture in the sense that if uh, it is not always your fault that things went wrong, there are other things which are at play. And sometimes you need just luck to just get through that. That's what Sounds I mean. like you need a very strong ego and a strong sense of purpose to be able to survive it. That's interesting. It's almost sad that it's, it's, it's so much luck-based. But let's go to our second panelist who's joining you also from India. It's Professor Rajiv Srinivasan. He is an adjunct professor at the India Institute of Management at Bangalore. And here is a personal quote from Rajiv. He says, from experience, I found that the main reason for entrepreneurial failure is the market. Market failure marketing capability, and distribution reach. Welcome, Rajiv. How are you today? Thank you, Bonnie. Great. And I hope you're doing well, too. I am very much. I'm delighted to be speaking with the three of you. We haven't introduced our third panelist yet, but we will. So tell me about this quote. Do you And, and while you're explaining your quote, Rajiv, do you agree or disagree with Siraj about, and Jeff Bezos about planetary alignment and luck? So please talk to me. Yeah, um, when I said from experience, I meant um, from the arrows in my back from having started two entrepreneurial startup companies and both of them failed. So I guess I'm an expert at uh, the things that one shouldn't do. But uh, in reality, what happened was in both my startups, we ended up not doing a great job on the marketing, uh, either not understanding what the customers wanted or not offering them the proper value proposition that they would uh, jump on, or um, misunderstanding the timing of uh, uh, of uh, you know bringing the product to market. So that, uh, in in a sense, you know, touches upon the luck issue or the astrological issue that uh, Suraj mentioned as well. You may have a perfectly good product, but the market isn't ready for it, or you may have um, misjudged. The value proposition that uh, you bring to the to the market as well. See, I've, I've been teaching innovation and strategy at the Indian Institute of Management at Bangalore for a long time, and I've seen a number of my students who went on to become entrepreneurs. And uh, the success rate there, unfortunately, is you know not uh, that 
great. I mean, it's still in the 70, 80% uh, failure uh, range. But the ones that have succeeded are the ones that have really understood the market and found a small niche for themselves that they were able to then exploit and, uh, and, you know, and get, and also to some extent pivot, you know, pivot at the right moment. If your initial idea isn't working so well, then you just switch and find, uh, you, you know, you, the opportunists you can find new things. That's that's what I what I meant in terms of, you know, understand which market you're going to go after, understand what the people there really are looking for, and then give it to them. Rajiv, thank you. It, it sounds like you need to have a, a strong mental constitution. You need to have enough cash to be flexible, to be fluid, to be agile. There's our big agile word, agility word. And you need to be able to, according to you, if the market isn't right at that time or you've miscalculated or misguided how to launch or when to launch or exactly what the prototype should look like, you need to pull back, regroup and say, oh, well, Maybe not right this way, this product. Let's look at it from a different angle. Uh, in your experience, when you come out of the gate, as I said, with this whoosh, this excitement, how many times should a startup recalculate or retool before they give up? Can we, can we put that information on the table, Rajiv? What do you think? I, I mean, I can't give you a really statistically valid answer, but I think almost uh, all the successful ones – make a couple of realignments because usually the very first idea that, you know, you thought was wonderful really isn't that wonderful or maybe 15 other people had the same idea at the same time. So you go in and then you, you know, you kind of tack with the wind, whichever way the wind's blowing, you try and figure that out and, uh, and you know, move slightly. And, and sometimes it may be a massive change. For example, that's what happened with, uh, I think, Twitter, for example, you know, they had a completely different business plan and it didn't work. And uh, they looked around and thought maybe this is an interesting idea. And to, to begin with, Twitter didn't sound all that exciting, really. It's like, how, why would anybody want to know what you had for breakfast today? <laughs> but uh, over time, this has become an enormously successful product in uh, a niche that they weren't even looking for. It's become the newspaper of choice. You know, who would have thought that when uh, Twitter finally, you know, initially came to market? So they showed the ability to pivot and be agile, as you said. And fortunately for them, they had enough money to uh, enable them to do that. Thank you very much. I, I'm looking for reality checks here, and you just gave us, us one. Rajiv, I have to tell you, I'm a big fan of the TV show, and I don't know if you get it over there, Shark Tank. And sometimes they will show a an update on a company that did get investments from the sharks, who were all self-made billionaires. And sometimes you'll see that a company, even on the way to great success, had a misstep or miscalculated or put their factory in the wrong place or redid their product in a way that the market really didn't love love that much and had to realign. So it is certainly reality. Thank you so much, Rajiv. Let me bring on our third panelist, and he is the uh, the brains behind this topic today. It's um, We are allowed to call him Lucky. He's my new best friend, Lucky, and I'm lucky to have him. But his formal name is Lakshman Pachanila Sashadri. He's at SAP. I hope I did justice to your name, Lucky. And here's the quote Lucky sent me from Peter F. Drucker. And Peter Drucker is probably the second most frequently quoted person on SAP Radio on all of our series. Here's the quote. Innovation is the specific instrument of entrepreneurship, the act that endows resources with a new capacity to create wealth. Oh, I love that. Lucky, welcome. How are you today? Oh, thanks, Bonnie. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm doing good. How are you doing? 
I'm doing wonderful. All three panelists asked me how I are, how I am, how I are. That's a first. I'm doing fine, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to speak with you. And, and it's wonderful. I'll tell you, talk about agility. You're all calling in from India and your phone lines are so sharp and clear and crisp. This is a pleasure for me. So, Lucky, tell me about this great quote from Drucker you picked today and why don't we expand on it? Go ahead, Lucky. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. I think this is a very profound statement uh, from Peter Drucker. Uh, especially, it um, it's very valid for the startup entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs as well. Um, you know that any business entre- entrepreneur has to first create a customer, and then um, the only way to do that is to have the right markets and then do the right innovation. So only then you can get the right results. So, as Suraj and um, Rajiv uh, mentioned before about the marketing, the right uh, markets and the customers, and therefore the right kind of alignment, and therefore you got to innovate. Um, I think this one sums up very well uh, with the earlier two statements what Rajiv and um, Sudhir mentioned. Therefore, I think um, uh, innovation being a specific instrument of entrepreneurship is very critical. And... Um, more than the markets, I think I'm, I want to uh, delve a little deeper. Uh, I think the Drucker also says the same thing, that um, um, the market consists of uh, customers, or we call them as people or the users, So, which means um, the systematic innovation to understand the insights from the users helps you to come with some good innovative ideas. And through those innovative ideas, you will be able to bring in some good um, entrepreneurship um, setups. So if you don't get those insights well, then you're hardly there. So um, accordingly, um, uh, and the, 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 the Peter Drucker statement uh, becomes very, very relevant um, in this context. You see that um, innovation as part of the startup uh, entrepreneurship um, journey is, um, you know, it's kind of given. So, so in... Uh, Similarly, in, um, when you look at innovation itself, uh, it is both conceptual and perceptual. So, um, therefore, uh, being close to the market means uh, go to understand, observe, and listen to your users and uh, the customers which constitute your market. So, if you, if you miss that, then um, you're missing the market. So, therefore, uh, no, this, this is what would um, create a good... Uh, entrepreneurship, a startup entrepreneurship, and that's how you go create some new wealth and new capacities. And that's what I see as a future for the, particularly for this uh, startup world uh, across the world, like we've seen in um, Silicon Valley, the Bangalore, the Berlin, the London, and so on. Thank you, Lucky. I appreciate that. I, I have a question for you. Uh, yeah, Brad, we're going to go a little bit longer before we take our break. My engineer is asking me when. We've got to ask these gentlemen what they're drinking for their coffee break story. But, Lucky, I have a question for you. We haven't yet addressed, uh, from what I remember from all three panelists, Siraj, Rajiv, and you, we haven't addressed the value or the importance of picking the right team. We've talked about market perception. We've talked about retooling and aligning. We've talked about the planetary alignment. Uh, we've talked about matching the product to what the market needs at that point in time. So, Lucky, I'd just love a couple of words of wisdom from you, if you don't mind, please, about 
how do you pick the right team? How do you know that you've got the people who will have the agility and will have the fortitude and will understand that, as you say, innovation is both conceptual and perceptual? What's your, what are your words of wisdom about picking the right startup team? Lucky? Yeah, um, Moni, I go with you because um, the team is um, quite critical. Um, there have been uh, several um, instances or uh, several cases wherein uh, you see a uh, a single founder or a single owner as a startup um, uh, organization, which has uh, not been recommended and uh, we don't see too much of uh, successes in that manner. But uh, when you see a team which have got a shared vision and a shared commitment, and therefore uh, they go the long way all through with a shared passion, it makes a lot of difference. And um, uh, what is more important is that we bring in the complementary skills. So uh, therefore, you try to balance it out um, not only in terms of uh, the te technology, financial, as well as the product or the market skills, but also in terms of your uh, uh, psychological balancing and then um, how to stay long in the game. You see, you need that tenacity to uh, run through uh, till you see your success. Because success uh, is not that easy. It's not like uh, the kid's game. So you got to stay successful. You need to have the lot of perseverance and passion and the tenacity. So therefore, the team composition is very, very critical, and uh, you need to look at those kind of ingredients of the, amongst the people. Maybe the team has got um, a kind of a, a CTO or a CFO, and uh, so, so, so is the case the rest of the team and so on, and um, you need to bring in the right kind of mix and right kind of balance so that even, even if one is down, other a person is able to lift the other people up and then um, take the passion all through the game. Thank you very much. Great, great words of wisdom there. I appreciate that, Lucky. Guess what? I'm gonna. You're all gonna get lucky right now. I'm gonna ask you to tell me what are you drinking. First of all, what time of day is it where you are right now, and what's in your cup? If it's interesting. If not, what are you drinking after the show? So, Siraj, let's <laughs> dial back to you. What What are you drinking? Tell me a story. Go ahead, Siraj. Um, so yeah, you want me to go. Yes, yeah, Siraj, I want you to tell me what are you drinking right now? Sure, yeah. So, lucky I'm, no, not lucky, sorry. So, Bonnie, I'm drinking uh, this uh, tea, which is an Indian tea called chai. We call it chai here. Uh, it's essentially tea with milk and sugar. The difference, uh, so basically, this is if you consider it as a single tea, it is not the case. So, what happens is this has, this is much more than tea with milk and sugar. Uh, it's a traditional Indian drink which people have here. And the, the, the significance of this particular drink is that it is something which is supposed to promote conversation, supposed to promote discussions. So back in my, uh, my village where, where I originally hail from, people sit around in a tea shop with, with chai and then they start the morning discussions in terms of what is happening in the world and the ideas get, keep flowing and you know, things keep moving. So uh, considering this being the occasion to talk about startups and innovation and also other topics of failure, I thought this is the right drink for the moment, and I'm having my chai. I think that's wonderful. Thank you. I'm taking notes here so I can tweet after the show because I've got too much to do to tweet during the show. Thank you so much, Siraj. Rajiv, what are you drinking today? Well, it's about 9 p.m. here, so what I plan to do after the show is to drink some tea and I have a sad story about uh, my drinks. I used to be a coffee drinker, but uh, you know, as, as Suraj said, we have this 
South Indian filtered coffee here, which is actually very decent, you know, with milk and sugar. But uh, some time ago, you know, I had this terrible experience. I read about the most um, expensive coffee in the world, and it's called Kopi Luwak. It comes from Sumatra. And it's pretty bizarre because what happens is that you take the coffee beans and feed them to an animal. I, I think it's a civet. Yes, okay? I and heard about that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And I, I, I heard that, and I've never been able to look the same way at a cup of coffee <laughs> after that. Okay, so, uh, and in fact, one of my friends had this interesting business idea. He said, well, why don't we see if we can do the same thing with elephants because we've got you know, more elephants in India than civets. So if uh, that can be a marketable commodity, and I, I thought about it and said, no, I, I, I want nothing to do with it. So now I drink green tea. You know, coffee makes me a little queasy. <laughs> Somebody mentioned that exact story on one of our radio shows the other day. That's so funny, Rajiv. I think, I'm not sure it was right? a civet. I, I think it might have been a, a special goat or something. They they feed the beans, and then the beans come out the other side. We'll be very polite and genteel here with some kind of an internal That's digestive right. process, and they are the most, somebody right. gave the price. Yes, I heard that story recently. It's uh I'll say hysterical. I'm not going to say any more than that. Or troubling. Maybe it's just, but certainly it's innovative <laughs> that somebody would have gone through all the trouble to bring, listen, to bring that product to market is absolutely amazing that it would, anybody would pay anything for it. Let's just leave it at that. Lucky, what time of the day or night is it where you are? And I'm not going to ask you to top that story, but you can try. Go ahead, Lucky. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, we are on the same time zone, so fortunately India doesn't have too much of, uh, like other countries, we have a single time zone, therefore, around the same time is, uh, is a dinner time for us, um, but I'll, what I like uh, drinking is uh, very similar to what Suraj and um, Rajiv said, I like masala chai, um, very popular, it's also popular in um, the Lufthansa Airlines, so whenever I try to, when I travel to Germany and um, I always ask for masala chai after a meal. <laughs> so it's an interesting um, uh, set of ingredients in that uh, chai. Otherwise, we call it tea. So, so it's basically a black tea with um, know, so some ingredients with uh, cinnamon bark, some ginger, and some cardamom and cloves, and uh, some bit of sugar. So you put them together, and um, either you have it in black or you have it along with the milk. So it's very refreshing and uh, gets gets your energy back and then you're back to action. So well. that's what I would uh, normally have and that's what I would like to have. An interesting story I'd like to, not a story, actually it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a real, um, um, what do you call, um, startup now. Something on the chai itself. There is um, a few weeks back uh, I saw a new uh, outlet in our campus, in our SAP campus, um, um, where I work. Uh, it's called Chai Point. I uh, know it is a kind of a startup. They already started with some 40 outlets across uh, India, and uh, many of them in uh, Bangalore as well. And one of them is uh, in our campus. Uh, so interesting one. Um, uh, it just, uh, no, again, started with um, a bunch of guys, um, uh, with uh, no guys from uh, one of them from the Baines Consulting, and other one from. Um, uh, a company called Mountain Rail Foods and so on. But what is interesting is that uh, they are attracting the younger crowd, the techie crowd, so that they could re-energize themselves um, in the middle of the day while you're working. So 
Uh, that is what it is. And then you have, you know, you have, you know, you can have them in different sizes, a small cup or a medium cup or a large cup. And then um, you have an app also. So through the app, you know, you could also uh, make, you know, you can make some, you can place some orders and you can check out where the nearby outlets. And you also get some incentives, you know, if you are a, a loyal uh, Joypoint customer. So that's an interesting one. So. Thank you very much. Thank All you. very interesting. I wish I could tweet everything. I'm doing my best here to take notes and tweet at the same time. I want to share these words of wisdom. Guess what, gentlemen? You have certainly earned a break. But when we come back, I'm warning you, put your seatbelts on because we're going to start a 30-minute roundtable when we come back, and we're going to kick it off with Siraj Suti at SAP Startup Focus. Guess what? Our topic today is why do so many startups fail? We're having a wonderful conversation. I'm sensing more warmth and passion from my panelists. They are engaged. This is a topic near and dear to all of them. Some of them have been in the trenches and some of them have been observers or worked with startups that did or did not succeed. If you are a startup or you have a gleam in your eye and want to start up a business, this information is invaluable. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP. We're going to go out for a 90-second break and come back with our roundtable. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Innovating Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Welcome back. Our topic along our thread of innovation and evolution is why do so many startups fail? We've explored several different avenues and aspects of this topic, a lot more to cover. My special guests today are Siraj Suti from SAP Startup Focus, Professor Rajiv Srinivasan, adjunct professor with the India Institute of Management at Bangalore, and Lucky Seshadri at SAP. I hope I pronounced everything right. I'm really working it, guys. Let's 
kick off our roundtable with Siraj. Siraj, I'm looking at the wonderful notes you sent me before the show. And in my intro, I mentioned there are three main reasons for startup failure. No market need, running out of cash, not having the right team. I want to give the correct attribution. You mentioned this came from CB Insights Research. But here's where I would like to kick off the roundtable, Siraj. You noted, your, your own note to me is, Paranoia is crucial for startups to detect these problems early on and be prepared to handle them head on. So, Siraj, why don't you start our roundtable? Let's discuss this new element of paranoia. Please go. Sure. So, um, before I talk about paranoia, I think the inspiration for this quote came from a book which uh, the ex-Intel uh, CEO, Andy Grove, had written called Only the Paranoid Survives. Right, so that is that is essentially where the original um, interest in this thing came in, and this is not uh, this is actually extremely relevant for startups. As I said in the beginning, um, for startups, uh, there are a lot of things which could go wrong because essentially it's a small company; it is not known in the market. It is trying to make a product fit with the market or market trying to identify the right fit and other things like that. So what happens is that. Anything could go wrong at any point of time. So, for example, if you launch your product early into the market, before the market is ready, you will fail. If you launch it late, you get failed. If your competitors come up with a different business model or different proposition, you fail. So there are a lot of cases where you could actually you run out of money, your teammates don't get along. A lot of these things keep, keep uh, coming up, and uh, especially for a startup, it is highly crucial that they identify these patterns early on and try to find or do basically course correct or as what Professor Rajiv said, pivot when, when these kind of changes are, are happening. So I, I think uh, uh, despite things looking rosy at any point of time, I think for a startup founder or for the managing team, it is highly crucial that they are keep constantly on the lookout for what is changing, what trend, what minute nugget of information is coming in which is literally might or may not change the way in which uh, my my uh, my customers view my product or how the market will view my my, my startup so, for, so that is the reason why i specifically said paranoia because paranoia keeps you on the edge it keeps you on looking very closely at each and everything which is happening in your business and that is what a startup really requires at any point of time uh, to look on yeah, so that's that's why I said paranoia is crucial. Thank you, Siraj. I want to get input now from Rajiv. Rajiv, do you agree with paranoia being a big element of success, that edge, that what's keeping you awake at night? And, and I believe what Siraj is saying, it should be keeping you awake at night. What do you think, Rajiv? No, I absolutely agree with uh, what Siraj said. I think, um, as he said, uh, you know, Intel is a good example of that uh, thought being put into action. Right, Intel, extremely successful company. It's you know made many people billionaires, etc. And I have studied some of the history. For example, when they were in what looked like a life and death struggle with uh, Motorola some years ago, although it's hard to believe Motorola has now been digested by some other company, Lenovo or something. But at that time, Intel was finding it very hard to make any headway against uh, Motorola. And what they did was they took you know the top. Uh, managers into a, a room and said, look, you guys aren't going to come out until you figure out how to destroy Motorola. And I think they had like a three-day conclave or something. And they came out with a brilliant plan, which essentially enabled them to move the developer community, you know, the software developers and app developers uh, of those days, application developers, and the, uh, the people who were the OEMs using their chips 
they've managed to migrate them or, or induce them to migrate from uh, Motorola to Intel, despite the fact that, objectively speaking, Motorola had the better products. So, you know, that's an example of how paranoia totally uh, was relevant. And uh, speaking of that, you know, there, there is a... There was a series of really good books written by a uh, gentleman named Jim Collins, whom some of you may have read. He was uh, a Stanford lecturer, and uh, later on he became a guru in his own right. And one of his books that I was reading recently, it's, a, it's about, uh, it's called Great by Choice. And so he comes up with several aphorisms, you know, for companies that have succeeded over a long period. And he, he makes comparisons head-to-head. You know, for example, Southwest Airlines, obviously a very successful company, and he found another company that was in the same business, had the same endowment, if you will, but was not successful. And he was trying to analyze them, and he came out with uh, several principles. And third, I think he had three or four principles, and the third that uh, he came out with was creative paranoia. You know, you imagine all the things that can go wrong, but don't get paralyzed by that paranoia, right? Figure out ways in which you can benefit from them, profit from them, or at least not get damaged by them. So, yeah, I, I totally agree that you have to have uh, an element of paranoia to succeed. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Lucky is, I'm going to use your name here, I'm going to leverage it irreverently. Would a startup be wise and be lucky if they know from the get-go that they should be paranoid? What is your thought? Uh, I agree, um, Bonnie, because... Um um, without um, being paranoid about uh, what you're focusing on, um, uh, you would not reach where you want to go. So one is to look at, um, you know, from what are things that are, are going around uh, uh, your enterprise or your startup um, so that uh, you could stay afloat. Another way of looking at it is to be focused. Be focused very clearly and um, um, where you want to go, and then towards that address those issues um, that comes on the way, uh, be alert, and um, uh, be, um, uh, be also proactive in terms of accepting things and then make the course corrections as we go. Um, I like to also bring in some examples like, um, mm-hmm. um, like some of the successful ventures, uh, big ones now, uh, and they started they're very small, like Google for that matter. Um, they're very clear. The search is something... Um, very simple for us, but uh, many of us still wonder why is that we couldn't do this before, right? They, they made it very, very easy and, um, uh, and successful. Uh, such a small thing, uh, no, it looks at such a simple and small thing, but you see the kind of magnitude it has taken uh, uh, shape now, and uh, that wouldn't have happened if they were not been focused, number one, if uh, they had not been paranoid about uh, um, the things that, you uh, know, that that goes around uh, uh, their their progress itself. <coughs> so, uh, Google is one such example. There are many such examples. Like you look at Facebook, or you look at um, uh, like I could give, give a, a very good example of India here in Flipkart and so on. They started very small with a core idea, but then you need to be paranoid about um, how you could become very very successful, so that you, know, you could embrace these changes, and uh, both in a positive sense as well as in the uh, if it's negative, then how to overcome them very easily. And um, also acknowledge about the creative pro- uh, para- paranoia, what uh, Rajiv said just now. Uh, that brings in the element of uh, uh, innovation, you see, so, so that uh, as we go along, not only solving the 
issues that you uh, face for your progress of your uh, startup, but also come with some uh, creative way of uh, solving things, as well as uh, making your product stronger and stronger. So I think being paranoid is uh, a very good uh, (laughs) factor to have for any of the startups. I'm sure many of the successful people have this part of their characteristics. I'm sure they do, and that's an interesting point. We talked a little bit about having the right core team, and and, uh, most people have family members, and it would be interesting. I know that's not the topic or focus of this episode of Innovating Innovation with Game Changers Radio. Interesting to see how the families respond when somebody is constantly saying, oh, my God, look at this competitor. They've got it. We have to retool. Oh, my goodness, we're in the wrong market. Oh, my goodness, we're not doing the right marketing. And somebody is saying, oh, you're paranoid. You're doing great. Just keep going, yada, yada, yada. Interesting, uh, the personal dynamic of expressing that paranoia, but I digress. Thank you, gentlemen. I want to go in a slightly different direction here. Rajiv, I'm looking at your notes, and there's an interesting point here I don't think we've covered yet. I'll read it, and then I'd like you to expand. You say, marketing is the Achilles heel of many small companies as they misread the market, they don't segment it well, they don't articulate the value to customers well enough, and they're surprised when they resist sales efforts. So marketing is the Achilles heel of many small companies, a.k.a. startups. Rajiv, why don't you expand this for us, please? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Um, I would like to bring to your attention a very interesting article in the Harvard Business Review three or four years ago. And if I'm not mistaken, the title is uh, Eager Sellers and Stony Buyers. And that encapsulates the whole concept that I'm talking about. If you're a startup entrepreneur, you know, you have lived and breathed that product for the last whatever, you know, months or years that you've been working on it. So you know it really, really thoroughly. And unfortunately, you also are susceptible to being subject to groupthink because you and your friends, you know, all your colleagues, they're all thinking about how wonderful this thing is. Therefore, you have a, mm-hmm. a highly exalted notion of the value of whatever you have put together, right? Now, Consider you um, going to a customer and you're trying to tell them how wonderful this new thing is. Now, the customer tends to be really skeptical. And basically what the customer says is, look, I'm perfectly happy with whatever, whatever I've been doing, okay? It works for me. You know, I'm used to it. Now, you're telling me to throw all that out the window and bring in this new whiz-bang, you know, gadget that you've put together. Why on earth would I do that? So then it becomes a question of, um, you know, the uh, immovable object facing the, what is it, the irresistible force kind of thing? And yes, that's a song. immovable <laughs> object wins, okay, which is that the, the, the sheer inertia of the customer. And uh, according to some of the psychological studies that uh, I have seen, it turns out, and I, I don't exactly know how they figured this out, it turns out that, you know, customers value whatever it is that they have right now three times greater than than it really is, you know, in terms of value. For example, we are, you know, we're all creatures of habit. All of us, I'm sure, have a favorite toothpaste. Now, toothpaste is about the most boring, you know, product, right? One toothpaste is exactly the same as another. But many of us, myself included, we will go from store to store looking for my, you know, our own brand, right? We resist mm-hmm. that change. So that is the you know, immovable object that I'm talking about. And on the other hand, the the uh, entrepreneur, the startup person, or even the, you know, intrapreneur, 
is likely to misjudge the value or inflate the value of their new offering by a factor of three, according to this research. So you multiply three by three, and they come up with the idea that the new thing has to be three times three, that's nine times better than the old thing. Otherwise, the customer won't switch. Now, that is really hard to do, right? You, you can't, you know, on a regular basis, bring out a quantum leap better, you know, toothpaste or, or whatever. And th- that is a reality that uh, uh, many uh, startup entrepreneurs run into, that they are fighting human nature, which is likely to, um, you know, we're, we're, we're oriented towards being in a rut. We get used to something, we're habituated to it, and we don't want to change it unless there is a tremendous reason. And this is where... Um, uh, some of the ideas of Clayton Christensen, you know, the guru of innovation at Stanford, or sorry, at Harvard Business School, come into the picture, and he says there are two kinds of innovation. One is uh, incremental innovation, and the other is disruptive. The in- incremental innovation happens all the time. You know, you have the new and improved, uh, you know, soap powder or or the new and improved car or something, and obviously it's slightly better, but it's not going to make people sit up and pay attention. But there are some things that are dramatically different. You know, that's what he calls radical or uh, disruptive innovation. They disrupt the market altogether. It can be something as simple as a new business model, like, for example, the, uh, you know, airlines, right? We've had all these traditional airlines, and then lo and behold, there comes uh, somebody like Ryanair in Europe or Southwest Air in, in the U.S. or in India, Deccan Airways, and they just disrupt the market, and they, you know, mess up all the... The, the whole thing, the mess up the whole market for the incumbents. They curse them, but, you know, they can't do anything about uh, the incumbent, I mean, about the, the insurgent. That's the word Christensen uses. So that's that's what I'm uh, coming, I mean, that's the angle that I'm coming from. You know, you have to create real value, or sometimes it may be enough that it's perceived value. For example, someone who goes and buys an iPod, or sorry, an iPad, you know, we folks who live overseas, uh, find it hard to understand the fascination that Apple has uh, for most of the Americans because in India, for example, the um, iPad costs about twice as much as a comparable Android device, right? But still, you know, um, the um, uh, so so the, uh, the but the fact is that Apple disrupted that market, which you know didn't even uh, exist except as a glimmer in somebody's eye. Uh, but they disrupted the entire market of computing by bringing in the in the uh, iPad, and they were able to create a value proposition, both uh, real and perceived. Thank you, Rajiv. I, while you were speaking, I was fascinated because I'm a baby boomer, and you perked my interest, piqued my interest with the lyrics, and actually the name of the song you were citing is Something's Gotta Give, and it's when an irresistible force such as you meets an old, immovable object like me. You can bet <laughs> as sure as you live, something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's <laughs> gotta give. So there you go, and I put the link into the Twitter chat so that you can and find it. Yes, yes, yes. I was just so intrigued. Thank you for bringing the old and the new together. Lucky, I want your your POV on this. You know, gentlemen, we've only got uh, 14 minutes till the end of the show, so we're not going to take the final break. We will save about a minute apiece for predictions at the very end. But Lucky, I'd love to get a quick review, a quick comment from you on what Rajiv just talked about. Thoughts on this Achilles heel in marketing? Yes, Bonnie. Um, I think so. Um, Marketing... um, 
No, uh, being um, closer to the market, um, as Rajiv said, it's critical. I, uh, as I said earlier, um, what constitutes the market is uh, customers, the consumers, or in my language, uh, the innovation language, I would call them as the actual users. The users could be anybody. It could be a CEO, or it could be a janitor in the company, or it could be a baby consuming the milk, or it could be a... Know, uh, and a housewife and so on. So whoever consumes the product or a solution is a user. So you've got to be uh, close to the user, and um, that's how once you know the user very clearly, understand the user very clearly, then your segmentation becomes very, very clear. I think that's what uh, um, uh, Rajiv also mentions here. Your segmentation has to be very clear, and then you can't boil the ocean. You can't uh, have one-size-fits-all kind of a... Um, no solution through your enterprise, your startup enterprise. So while I'm saying this, I am uh, uh, tempted by the quote uh, by Jack Dorsey, the Twitter co-founder. Um, the way they, you know, they, they, you know, they, she has uh, found uh, ideas uh, you know, coming from, uh, not from various sources. Uh, now it's not like that. I got a great idea, therefore um, let me go try it out instead. No, they they started listening to people. No, they're listening to the staff, their users and customers. And um, the quote goes like this: I spend 90% of my time with people who don't report to me, which allows for serendipity. Since I'm walking around the office all the time, you don't have to schedule serendipity; it just happens. So that's very compelling, isn't it? Because um, you're listening or observing and understanding the people. Uh, who is uh, the people here could be your like you know like the staff, the users and customers. That's where you get the unmet needs or the unarticulated needs from the from the users. You see, that's how you infer, that's how you interpret, that's how you get the insights, and then you get your better ideas, and therefore you are able to see the the right solution for the right kind of. Um, profile of your customers, otherwise your, um, as I right profile, the personas or the kind of segments, the market segments that uh, you try to address. So, um, therefore, uh, no, the, the segmentation becomes very critical, so if you know your users or your, your personas very well, then you are there. Uh, your uh, half the battle is won, and um, it's like, you no know, understanding them very well, and um, how do you understand them very well? How do you know that... Uh, uh, that they really need them. Now, as I said, uh, it is not only the unmet needs and the, uh, and the unarticulated needs, but uh, how do you understand them? Unless you find them that uh, they're in extreme pain or uh, their hair is on fire, right? So then you see that, you, that uh, this solution is really going to help them to put off the extreme pain. And then you also can evaluate whether uh, you know, your solution to the market segment is either uh, a paracetamol, which is a must-have, or is just like a you know, kind of a nice-to-have, like a vitamin or so. So um, I go with what Rajiv said, and um, I think um, that's very, you uh, know, innovation marketing is critical, and then um, therefore understanding the unarticulated and unmet needs of the users uh, gets you there. Uh, your, um, your startup entrepreneurship becomes... Um, much more meaningful and much more compelling, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So that no, you're closer to. Can the I can I jump customers. in? Yes, please. May I jump in there for a minute. Yes. Uh, Lakshman and I, we uh, collaborate. Uh, thank you, Bunny. We collaborate mm -hmm. to offer a workshop 
at the Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore, on design thinking. And Lakshman is a, ah. is a, is a total guru at that. And, uh, you know, the kinds of things that you mentioned are uh, encapsulated and gathered in this, is this whole new discipline called design thinking, which basically is, you know, really truly understand what your user wants, you know, and understand mm-hmm. that person in a holistic manner, right? Great stuff. And I, I would recommend, you know, any of you going to, uh, uh, to the web and looking at, you know, design thinking as a uh, new discipline because industrial design, as we have seen with Apple, has a huge impact on uh, profitability, sales, et cetera, you know, because that's what people, real people, not uh, technical people necessarily like. So, you know, Lakshman, I would suggest you say a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, design thinking also, if, if, if I may request that. Yes, you may request that, but I want to I want to tell all of you that we have nine minutes till the end of the show. And in addition to design thinking, I'm going to put a little more on your plate, Lucky. Uh, you have a statement okay. here in your talking points that I want to make sure we cover. And, gentlemen, we're going to have to save three minutes, one apiece for predictions. But, Lucky, in addition to design thinking, I'd like you to cover this statement. You say, normally, ideas are the startup founders-centric ideas and not user-centric unless the founders had a personal experience in the stated context. So talk to me briefly about design thinking and then talk about the difference between founder-centric versus user-centric. Lucky, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Bonnie. I think, um, you know, you're able to merge uh, Raju's uh, request as well as uh, this talking point together. It's great. Um, yeah, this is what happens uh, in many of the startup uh, uh, setups. Uh, uh, what happens is, and I have come across many of uh, the startup community uh, out here in Bangalore. Uh, I've seen uh, many of them coming with several ideas, making a pitch, and um, you see them. Most of them are kind of you now um, um, heard before uh, in different contexts, and uh, it is like you now again, you now kind of uh, scratching the surface you know, without any uh, unique um, value proposition and so on. So what happens, what it means here is that the founders think this is a great thing to do and they have some passion towards that and they have probably had some experience around that but may not have tested it by themselves. That's what I call, no, what I say is that sort of founder-centric, not user-centric. When I say user-centric, I go with what I said earlier with, with, with Rajiv's starting point is that... You, you look at the problem context and then see what problem you're solving. And um, while you are um, trying to solve the problem, you are getting closer to the users who are getting impacted and then trying to see who is that persona. And therefore, uh, you see um, how uh, you can come with the right solution, an appropriate solution, or, or a relevant solution, I would say, for that particular persona. So that becomes completely consumable for that particular persona. So which means this persona is existing mm-hmm in the world in, uh, in a kind of a streak or in kind of a segment here. Then it becomes very, very relevant. So how do you do that? So you do that uh, uh, through the design research methods, uh, otherwise the new coinage is a design thinking approach, uh, which has been now in work for the last um, 10, 12 years, at least in the Ivy League um, uh, institutions, as well as uh, now becoming popular in um, many institutions, including in India here, um, is that uh, you get closer to the user. You could validate, uh, even the, the sort of founder-centric ideas could be validated, uh, keeping the user in mind, and then give a try, and then see whether it works or not. If it doesn't work, it's good, that, so that now you, uh, you understand it's a early failure, and then you don't uh, sink in uh, too much money or effort, right? 
So on the other hand, uh, you do the uh, what you call the exploratory approach of uh, looking at the problem context and come with uh, the relevant solution, which is basically innovation coming out of the problem-solving approach. Um, that could uh, give you some uh, possibility of uh, disruptive innovation. Because there we are looking at, uh, because the reason thing talks about uh, things that uh, otherwise, uh, which you cannot get it from the users from just about talking. Because quite a lot of ethnography is involved here, and then uh, you do a lot of interpretation and try to understand the unmet needs and the unarticulated needs, which is otherwise difficult to not do in an interview. So that's where you know, your disruptive innovation uh, starts coming up and then becomes a you know, big, uh, big game changer. Now, like, uh, again, going back to the example of Google, because... Um, it Lucky, I can give you one more one more minute on this because we've got to move to predictions. Yeah. We're four minutes from the end of the yeah. show, so go ahead, one minute, finish up, please. Yeah. I'm finishing in half minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. So, <laughs> so no, who had thought? See, search is such a simple thing; everybody knew about it, but nobody talked about it. But um, how did the, the Google guys <laughs> were able to articulate it better? This is unarticulated need of the of the common people, but they were able to pick it out. And then mm-hmm. came the disruptive innovation. So I'd like to stop here and then hand over the baton to you. Thank you so much. I hate to interrupt. I rarely do it, but we are looking at a hard stop in four minutes, and we have a lot to cover. Suraj, I haven't had time to go back to you in a while, but I'm going to let you do the predictions first. I'm giving you exactly one minute. My question for the crystal ball predictions round, all three panelists, is by 2020, which is not that far away anymore, will so many startups still be failing, or will they have learned some of the lessons we're talking about today. Siraj, predictions, 2020, one minute, go. Yeah, so in my view, I think you're not going to reduce the number of failures which is going to happen. It is going to still keep happening because, I mean, as I said, matching needs, getting needs are all, it's a, it's a matter of trial and experimentation and different techniques. But what I do see happening is that you will fail fast, but you will fail cheap. So what is happening with improvement in technology is that things are becoming much affordable, which means you're not going to spend a huge amount of money trying it out and failing closely, but more it is going to be fail fast and fail cheap. And at the end of the day, you will have more successful startups going forward. Thank you and, very uh, much. Classic yep, example go ahead. Of that is, yeah. Yep. Go ahead. Give yeah, me an example. example is an example. Yeah, so again, the classic example, for example, in the area of manufacturing, nobody thought about disrupting manufacturing, but now, for example, 3D printing is coming up, and it is essentially making it much cheaper to print your own stuff, which means that the cost of experimenting with new designs and new products is going to come out dramatically down. So you can actually experiment more and then finally come to success. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Rajiv, I can give you, oh, not, 60 seconds tops. Go ahead, prediction. Okay. Funny. Um, I, I think um, my prediction is uh, not that uh, uh, the failure rates will go down or up or anything. I think it'll be different people doing the uh, entrepreneurship. You know, we've all heard of B2B as business to business, right? But I have a friend who talks about B2B being Baghdad to Beijing, okay? It's a huge swath of uh, territory, right? Pretty much uh, uh, half the world's population lives there. And that's where a lot of entrepreneurship is going to arise. Because today, we who are in that uh, region, right smack in the middle of that, we suffer from a lot of uh, handicaps. For example, not enough capital available. Also, social stigma towards failure. 
right? Now, I believe that all that's going to change, and more and more people from this uh, emerging market uh, uh, area, uh, geographies, are going to be becoming entrepreneurs, and which brings, you know, different challenges because many of these markets don't have the uh, internet bandwidth or other infrastructure. But uh, I think, I mean, they will still continue to fail for the same reasons, you know, poor market and, you know, lack of paranoia, you know, whatever, poor Thank teams. You. But it'll be different people. Thank you. Great prediction. Lucky, I've got a 10-second window for you to give your predictions. We're out of time. One one sentence. Predict, go. One sentence. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, the future is going to be with a lot of startups and uh, According to the OECD report, only 7% of Gen Y will work with Fortune 500 companies. So good, um, good future for the startup entrepreneurs. And if they could focus well, I think that is the, that's going to be the, the future. Thank you very much. I have to say a, a wonderful thank you to my three articulate and passionate panelists. It's been such a pleasure. Suraj Suti, Professor Rajiv, and Lucky Seshadri. I'm still trying to pronounce your names. You've all been wonderful. Thank you for calling in so late in the day. And thank you to Suzanne Kennedy at SAP for tweeting along with me at hashtag SAP Radio. We also have leaders, L-E-A-D-R-S-D-O, tweeting for us. Thank you so much. Uh, let's see. That's the end of our broadcast week. I'll be back next Wednesday with the new Coffee Break with Game Changers. Actually, it'll be part one of our year-end predictions 2015. I have 14 guests in one hour. It's predictions on steroids. You don't want to miss it next Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a Game Changer today. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day, and thanks to Michelle Serrier for sponsoring this series. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.